Hello, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This is a long article, a long episode called The Pre-Christian Utopia Versus the Dark Ages of Christianity. This is part 20 of my whole Both Body and Soul series, Why I'm Catholic. Um, let's get started. It's a long one. Something that gets buried today is how the pagan or secular world treated women, and it's buried for a reason. We like to pretend the, quote, dark ages were full of horrible witch-burning psychopaths, but that pre-Christian societies were these joy-filled lands where all joined hands and sang songs like the Who's in Dr. Seuss's Whoville at the end of The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. But nothing could be further from the truth. A very good read on how much people have forgotten our Christian roots is a book by Tom Holland called Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind. We have forgotten how much Christianity has improved the lives of everyone in comparison to the, quote, good old days of paganism. Uh, we are so accustomed to hospitals, universities, libraries, and nonprofit charities that we forgot where they all came from. They didn't come from Caesar or anyone in his time, just so you know. People like to think there was some utopia before the evils of Christianity stamped out the fun. We will get to find this out soon, once again, however, because we are lurching back toward that fun. Uh, we forget things easily, and not just over long expanses of time, but in single generations. Uh, the book of Judges illustrates this very well. It's kind of the recurring theme in the book, where each fall into sin by the Israelites has a savior, a judge who's risen up, and he saves them. And within 40 years, the people resume their errors and forget why they even needed a savior. Um, our era is similar to that uh, kind of which preceded World War I when nations celebrated the beginning of the war, holding parades, cheering, wishing the boys well in their lovely uniforms and flags, only to find out a few years later that the war was a meat grinder of unprecedented levels thanks to progress in technology and science that had changed war completely. So as we celebrate our going back to the pagan world, getting God out of the way, uh, we're going to find that out again. As we whisk God out of the public arena and out of our personal lives, we forget what the world was like before Jesus walked this earth, before he died on a cross and rose from the dead to do three things in particular, which is take away our sins, transform our suffering, and defeat the devil. It's important to remember there's multiple things that happened there. One of the primary lies told today about the pre-Christian world is that women's lives were better without the church imposing restrictions on them. But this is not true, and it has never been true and it never will be true, no matter how many professors and bloggers keep writing about it. Disrespect of women was not a Christian doctrine or idea, but it was indeed a core doctrine of the secular powers of Rome. And it's actually quite similar to the lyrics of one of Snoop Dogg's songs. Um, you could sum up the treatment of women by the wealthy of the ancient world in Snoop's hit song, It Ain't No Fun If The Homies Can't Have None. I love that song. I don't listen to it now, but I did when I was in high school. Women were objects, pure and simple, and Snoop Dogg and the Romans and the Greeks, and the, they all, women were objects, okay? The interesting thing about reading the Old Testament treatment of women is that today we think it sounds barbaric, when in reality, it was the most progressive treatment of women in the ancient world. I have a link in the article if you go to it. We read with Western eyes, blinded by time, through which we are blocked from understanding nuance and history. We cannot read the Old Testament with our Western eyes because we're so far removed from it to understand how progressive it was in the treatment of women, which you, I, I know I won't convince anyone, 
but I would encourage you to read the link. Go to the link. With the church, women achieved a radical leap forward, one that the pagan world mocked, mocked for centuries. Many of the women who fought against the old ways were martyred for it. It's strange that they would be willing to die for such oppression. We are taught and we're bonked over the head repeatedly with this dark age myth in every university course. You cannot go to college today without being bonked over the head about how Christianity has oppressed women horribly. And this is by design. We're not taught the reasons why Christian life appealed to so many women and still does today because it undermines the sand foundation of modern life, especially modern university life, um, which will which will ultimately undermine itself because it is spiritually dead. Spiritually dead cultures die. That's just a fact. You can't have a spiritually dead culture for very long. Here's a summary from a writer named Mike Aquilina of how women were treated before God revealed himself to us through Jesus. Um, I should note that none of this was covered in my university history classes, nor was it ever mentioned in the women's studies class I had to take in college. Okay, here we go. Pagan and Christian sources agree that the church grew at an astonishing rate in the first three centuries of its existence. The modern sociologist Rodney Stark estimates a steady growth rate of 40% per decade during centuries of intermittently intense persecution when the practice of the Christian faith was a capital crime. Pagan and Christian sources agree that women made up the majority of converts. The most effective opponent of Christianity from this period was a Greek philosopher named Celsus. He mocked the church for this. Around AD 178, he accused Christians of not daring to evangelize women when their sensible husbands and fathers were present, but rather getting hold of them privately and filling their heads with, quote, wonderful statements, telling them to pay no attention to their father and to their teachers. So what kind of statements were those? They no doubt involved the principle of equality of the sexes before God. To quote Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, Said St. Paul, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The apostle wasn't denying sexual differences, nor was he claiming there should be no difference in the roles that men and women played. Rather, he was claiming for women and slaves and foreigners a dignity that no one in his world, not even a philosopher as brilliant as Celsus, could recognize. A woman in that world was seen as having little intrinsic value. She derived her identity from the males in her life, first her father, and then her husband, and then her sons. The law recognized little for her in the way of natural rights or protections. Women were not permitted to testify in a court of law because their testimony was considered unreliable. The law treated them like children. The value of their sex was nowhere more evident than on the day of their birth. Infanticide was common in the Greco-Roman world. It was practiced mostly for economic reasons, to limit family size and to maximize the future return on the father's investment in child rearing. Thus, children who were defective in any way, that is, disabled, were usually drowned in a bucket of water at birth or left exposed at the town garbage dump. There they might be claimed as carry-on by vultures and dogs or taken up by pimps to be raised as prostitutes. All of the documentary and archaeological evidence indicates that the most common defect for which children were abandoned was femaleness. Nowhere is the matter expressed more shockingly than in a love letter found in the excavations at a site in Egypt. The husband, named Hilarion, 
closes his, his letter to his wife, Alice, by saying, if you happen to be pregnant again, if it is a boy, leave it. If it is a girl, throw it out. In the economy of antiquity, a girl was an expense, an economic liability in ways that a boy was not. A boy would one day be an earner. A boy might provide for his parents in their old age. He might even improve their status by his accomplishments. A girl, on the other hand, would need to be fed and clothed for more than a decade before she was married off, and upon marriage, her father would have to pay a sizable dowry. For these reasons, the Roman playwrights referred to girls and young women as odious daughters. It's likely that the dialogue in their works is an accurate reflection of common turns of phrase. The ideal daughter for Roman pagans, for pagan Romans, was physical beauty, for the beautiful would be married off the soonest. The typical age for her arranged marriage was 12, theoretically at puberty, but many girls were given in marriage at 11 to a man much older, and the marriage, it seems, was consummated whether the girl was physically ready or not. It appears there was little expectation of a loving relationship. Adultery was common, as was divorce. Abortion was common, as was infanticide. Marriage was a transaction established for the continuation of the customs of family and society for another generation. A woman's role was to produce a son to be heir, and if she suffered the misfortune of widowhood before bearing a son, she might live the rest of her life in poverty. The laws and traditions of the Greco-Roman world had been refined over centuries to communicate the value that society placed on women. It was very low. Okay, that's a long article I shared. Um, so the point is, if not held back by faith and morals set on the rock of objective truth, people will treat women like objects and objects like women. This is sin in a nutshell, by the way. And there is no one more in danger of being treated like an object than the crown of creation who is called woman. If you were rich and powerful in pre-Christian times, you could have as many objects called women as you could afford or capture, including the wives of those less powerful than yourself. You could see this in every king that ever had a harem. Also, see David and Bathsheba, as well as Solomon's sex life with his hundreds of wives. These are two biblical falls from grace for this bad behavior, which is narrated. It is told and it is not to be emulated, where sin is being narrated but not praised. Uh, notice that wherever there is polygamy, you have a mess in the Old Testament, and that includes Abraham and Jacob, the two, two of the primary patriarchs, had marriage problems because they were not having a proper marriage. They had polygamy. At least Isaac kept it together with Rebecca, and they are the true model of marriage in the Old Testament. So if you're looking for a good marriage, you go to Isaac. There's not a lot said about it, but it's said. Uh, so we are moving back to that era now as calls for the bad idea of polygamy have resurfaced. So Utah is no longer the only place we associate with the term. This is just one form of sin that is being presented as a good today, as we have so many slippery salespeople twisting truth into the shape of bad ideas that women finally escaped through faith in Christ and living the Christian life with Christian men. The arguments today are no different from the Romans and Greeks. Here's what the arguments are. Is your baby possibly defective or was it just bad timing for your life? Then kill it, abort. Uh, your marriage has a minor difficulty? You better divorce. Divorce him. Divorce her. That's what, we, that's what we're teaching everyone. You want immediate pleasure instead of commitment, responsibility, and love that requires work and action? Porn. There's your answer for that. You go right to that. 
uh, here even more. You got? Do you have a mother-in-law you don't want to deal with? Parker in a home. We just get rid of people now. That's we're not respecting people. We're getting rid of them. Uh, the reality is that the only reason we have nice things at all is because of Christianity. And that is the spiritual struggle that we are in, where advertisers and intellectuals preach from the screens, telling us that progress means going backward to pre-Christian insanity, which always ends in might makes right. If you are, let me just stop there for a second. Might makes right is kind of the the whole thing of the old world, the pre-Christian world. If you are not pursuing objective truth as your ultimate goal, as the end of all things, the pursuit of truth, then the desire for power is the substitute. And I don't care how you try to sugarcoat it, when God is no longer the foundation of truth, you end up with my truth, and that devolves into groups dictating truth by coercion, eventually at gunpoint. Wherever, Whenever the church has gone astray, they fall into the same trap of power politics mixing with the faith. The eye can never stray from Christ, who is the truth and foundation of all things, nor can his words be twisted, as he says of the commandments, that they are not malleable to fit the decade we happen to live in. Matthew five seventeen to 20 says, Whoever then relaxes one of, these, one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But he who does them and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. To under... Okay, let me switch tack here. I'm going to switch tack on that. To understand the difference between the pre-Christian era and the dark ages of Christianity, let's compare two buildings. I want to compare two buildings, arguably the two greatest buildings in the world, which happen to be in the same city, just a few miles apart. When people travel to Rome, Italy, they visit two places, mainly two places. One is the Colosseum where hordes of bloodthirsty fans got drunk and gambled and watched men fight one another to the death. And it is stunning. The other is St. Peter's Basilica, a church, where a fisherman named Peter was crucified for telling people about a carpenter who was God incarnate. The church is stunningly beautiful, but the real purpose is that St. Peter's is a place where the sacraments take place, baptism, confession, holy matrimony, and the Eucharist. Holy Mass happens hourly there every day, even while the tourists mill about in confusion and just marveling at the the sights. The purpose of St. Peter's and any other church is humility and surrender of your life to God. Do you see the difference? The Colosseum and St. Peter's. Both are architectural marvels, visually stunning, spectacles to your senses, but their purpose is in direct opposition to each other. Notice that America is no no longer building beautiful churches. This should tell you something, as we build billion-dollar stadiums for our own gladiator games. St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City was built in 1858 and dedicated in 1910. The rise of the modern stadium started in the early 1900s and exploded after World War II. So we are moving away from St. Peter's and back to the Colosseum, and so are our human relations. It's not surprising. You can see it even in what we build and what we spend our money on. What I'm getting at is this. Without humility before God, we see competition and strife as the great entertainment, the great game. And suffering is something to avoid and shun at all costs for ourselves. Winning is all that matters because winning removes suffering. We completely lose the point of redemptive suffering. This is because most of us don't really believe in the afterlife or eternal life any longer. 
we have no meaning in our lives when we lose that. So we have to look for it in athletics, sex, money, power. Our, our simple functions as fathers, mothers, sons, and daughters no longer excite us because we have traded eternal life for the plastic trophies of this world. One thing that always amazes me is that within three months after the Super Bowl or the NCAA tournament, I can't even remember who won because it really doesn't matter. But I never forget Christmas or Easter or Pentecost or the Ascension days because those matter immensely. Nothing angers unbelievers so much as the idea that you were made for a higher purpose, made by a living God who resides outside of time and space but speaks to us here. The purpose is to serve him and serve others. And the primary way we do that, if not married to Christ or his church, is marriage between one man and one woman. And having a marriage and family is the great purpose of our earthly lives. And why is that message so bothersome to people today? It's because it doesn't allow us to follow our base instincts, which is to pleasure ourselves constantly. It requires abandonment to a higher power and a higher purpose, neither of which is the self. Sometimes we confuse this thinking that our sacrifice, quote, for work or school is the offering we make to God. But, but those things are ultimately for ourself, not God. Offerings to God expect nothing in return because there's no transaction to be made when dealing with God. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything from us. We give it because we need him. We need God. So if you're, And if your offering is contingent on receiving something from God, you're actually talking to the devil. You're in superstition mode. So yes, some people, uh, for they may not be fertile. Some will live a single life. Some will adopt. Some will never have children. Abandonment of the self means conforming your life to God's will, not despairing over what struggles he has given us, because we are all given struggles in order to draw us closer to him. And until you realize this, suffering will seem arbitrary and unfair. If you don't have eternal life as your goal and truth as your ends, you won't understand that. As for sex, the great call to chastity is pursuing a life of virtue, whether you are married or single. They are both chastity, just different types. And I failed at this in my younger life miserably. I grew up on all the movies of the 80s and I could go on. I may have a whole topic on that someday for why we all were so confused when we were younger. As I said, people used to sign the yearbooks where I grew up of uh, get drunk, get laid, be somebody. That was like a, a great statement to get drunk, get laid and be somebody. But you can't understand chastity and why it's meaningful, why marriage is meaningful until you get out of this modern mind mode. You cannot understand the parable of the grain of wheat without looking at the formless void of creation and seeing that in order to fill it, it must be done in the right way, which is to fill the void with families. God didn't say subdue the earth and form a government and have the government raise the children. No, that's, that's what actually what Karl Marx said and all of his flunkies that followed after him and who now occupy your employer's human resources department and very likely your local school board. The form we are given by God is called marriage. It's between a man and a woman and the void is filled with new life called children. Now that sentence right there is enough to get me fired from my job today, uh, but the truth must be spoken and the truth will remain whether, whether I say it or not. It doesn't really matter. The truth will come out because it has to. Because not only does marriage and family fulfill the physical form of this world, but it fulfills the heart. 
Dying to self means maturing into a greater purpose to serve God and others. Only then can we be spiritually reborn here. Then in physical death, if we choose God's will and not our own, we will be brought back to union with God in eternal life. That's what we want, both here and hereafter. We don't want what HBO is telling us to want. We don't really want what Apple is selling. It's not sex that we want. It's not career. It's not a threesome. It's not four wives. It's not soullessness. We want God as it is in heaven and on earth. Psalm 128 is the model for this fulfillment where he says, your life, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Okay, FYI, fear of the Lord means wonder and awe, a healthy fear, not the kind of fear where you simply pay your taxes to avoid jail. This is a kind of fear that grows out of love, wonder, awe, reverence, and it all starts with knowing that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness, in need of a savior. Recognizing your status as a sinner will free you because it sheds all the fig leaves we wear. And then once we have bore our souls before God and become honest, open, and willing, then we can return to the faith of a child and let the ego wither away as it must. Recall that Jesus died naked on the cross. All was stripped away, and his death showed us the result of our sins for what we did to Jesus and what we do to one another every day. This doesn't mean it's easy, but if you fear the Lord and are grateful for your daily bread and want nothing beyond the grace of God, only then will the blessings of a wife and children satisfy you because you will share all of it with the Creator. And if some tragedy occurs, like in the book of Job, and all is taken away or anything is taken away, even then you may have the strength and the grace of God, as that is the rock of your life that can be clung to when everything else fades away. When your life becomes an offering to God and God's endless offering of creation is accepted by you, then what more could you possibly want? What more could you want than that, than rest and peace? Conforming your will to God's is how you level up in this world, and you do this by praying. All right, thanks for listening. I have, I'm going to split this one into two episodes. I think I have a lot more to go here. So I'll be back with another one. And thanks for listening.